السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته الحمد لله والصلاة والسلام على رسول الله Brothers and sisters in Islam We've had a break and now we recommence the seerah of the Prophet from where we left off <coughs> I'm aware that some people are having difficulty getting here because of the timing but let it be known that from now until the end of this series until we finish the lectures of the seerah, it'll be between Maghrib and Isha. That's our final decision. I'm trying to please everybody, but I have to learn a lesson that you really can't, you just do your best inshallah and reach the majority. So I really apologize to those brothers and sisters who are unable to make it. But you know, the timing of the Maghrib is going to be extended. So soon you'll have more time. Maghrib is just gonna be later and later inshallah. Welcome back, and we now continue from the point of when the Prophet ﷺ returned from the Isra al Ma'raj journey. Isra al Ma'raj journey. It's now the so now I'm going to take you from the 11th year of prophethood. The Prophet ﷺ became a prophet. And then we start counting one, two, three, four, five. Now I've reached the part where it's the 11th year that the Prophet, peace be upon him, has been a prophet. So you want to know what happens next? Yes? All right. At this point, the da'wah in Mecca is failing. It's not the Prophet who's failing himself, but the people of Mecca are showing too much resistance. They just don't want Islam. And their pride is overcoming them. And hope is almost lost for the people of Mecca. So when the Prophet peace be upon him returns from Isra al Maraj, they try to use it as an excuse to prevent people from listening to him. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives him a way out of it. And the resistance increases even more. Even more. His uncle Abu Lahab was supposed to look after Muhammad after his brother Abu Talib after dying. But he couldn't do so because of his pride. And if it was up to him, he'd be the first to kill the Prophet. But he can't because it was the custom of the Arabs that whoever kills a member of their own family then the humiliation upon their bloodline is forever so Abu Lahab he didn't kill the Prophet not because he loved him he hated his nephew and he hated what he was calling for but it was a matter of tribal pride that stopped them so he's taken away his protection for his nephew, but he's not attacking him physically. But he wants other people to stop his own nephew, and he's talking bad things about him. You have Abu Jahl, who is also conspiring. And so the Prophet is going through the worst harm now than all the years that have come before. He's alone, with only a few people who had followed him. For 11 years of calling people to Islam, 
Only a number of people have accepted until this point. Maybe not more than 70 around him in Mecca. And a few who had migrated to, guess where? Who remembers where they migrated to? Ethiopia. Ah, it's too loud? Okay. Sorry about that. So what did we reach? 70 people had embraced Islam, approximately, and the rest of them had gone where? To, to, to Ethiopia. They have migrated. 11 years, brothers and sisters, 11 years, only about 70 people. Yet, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is getting these strongest of Muslims that were surrounding the Prophet the most elite of Islam. And they were going to have a specific name. They were going to be called, guess what? Till we know their names till today. Starts with an M. The, the Muhajirun. The Muhajirun. And they are mentioned in the Quran. The Muhajirun means the migrants. The Muhajirun can't just be anybody. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sifted through all of the people of Quraysh. And this number, 70 to 100 or so, were going to be the ones who are the elites till the end of time, Al-Muhajirun. You will see later on that the Prophet ﷺ returns back to Mecca and the others, everyone else embraces Islam. But they were not going to be given the title Muhajirun. So there is a wisdom in that. At the same time, these Muhajirun have to suffer a lot in order to be resilient and endure the da'wah. When you give da'wah, it's not easy. And Jannah is expensive. Resilience is a value. And your importance is how much you can face challenges and odds. Triumph and success has never been on the backs of weak people. It has always been on the backs of resilient, strong, willed people. Any, any, any success, Muslim or not Muslim. But, the, but because the message was so important, it's the best message in the history of mankind. And the Quran is coming down for the first time from above seven heavens. It has to be carried upon the most elite, the most strong inside. And they were those people. Not many were going to embrace after them until a short while later. So let's see, inshallah. These the Muhajirun. Among them were Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman, Ali radiallahu anhum ajma'een, Abu Ubaidah ibn Jarrah. There were also Mus'ab ibn Umayr. There was Bilal radiallahu anhu. And there was Suhaib al-Rumi. And there was, and there was. And among them many women. All of these, Fatima radiallahu anha, the daughters of the Prophet all of them, Khadija. All of these were the elites. Ja'far ibn Abi Talib, Zubayr ibn Awam, Sa'ad ibn Abi Waqqas, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, the ten who were promised paradise, and many more. And among those women who we don't know their names, and men who we don't talk about it much, but they are the Muhajirun, the elites of the elites. And Allah praises them in numerous passages in the Quran. He always talks about Al-Muhajirun Al-Awwalun, the first migrants, the ones who were with the Prophet who suffered the most. They are praised in the Qur'an. So, Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam 
has now been given the permission from Allah to give the permission to these elites to leave their homeland. They didn't want to leave the Prophet ﷺ. The Prophet ﷺ, he insisted that they must migrate. So, they went to Ethiopia. But just before they migrated, Allah ﷻ had chosen a place for them to migrate to. He told them, anywhere you find that you can practice your deen and find your safety and peace, leave. But there wasn't many places they could leave. So what did the Prophet ﷺ do? He tried now, for the first time, to focus his energy and da'wah outside of Mecca. He went to the other Arab tribes. Now he had been given da'wah and he was reaching them, but this time he was focusing physically. After he went to a ta'if, it didn't work and it got worse. So now he's looking for another place. Ta'if didn't work. He's looking for another place. And he's relying on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So one day, as he was doing tawaf around the Kaaba, now remember when I told you that he has the protection of someone else. Does anyone remember who that person is? He died a, a disbeliever, but he was well-mannered, of great character. He had noble values, but he died a disbeliever. He's one of the chiefs of Mecca. Anyone remember his name? Hmm? No? Not Abu Talib. He's, he's died. He died now. Mutaim ibn Adi. That's him, Mutaim ibn Adi. And he was protecting him. So the Prophet now is just barely protected. But they're not happy. So as he was doing tawaf, a man, one of the chiefs, of a very elite tribe of the Arab tribes from outside. He had heard about the message. He comes and sits down with the Prophet ﷺ, and the Prophet teaches him about Islam. And the man was extremely impressed. Extremely impressed. So, what does he do? He goes back to his people. I think their names were Banu Sa'sa. And he says to them, this man is amazing. Wallahi, he, brought, he brings words that I've never heard the likes of before. His message is amazing. Wallahi, this man, if we follow him, we will become the elites of the elites of all of the Arab world. And we'll become their leaders and kings if you follow this man. So they all said, all right, we'll follow him. So the, this chief comes back to the Prophet ﷺ and says to him, I and all my tribe will follow you on one condition. I want you to listen carefully. On one condition. So what is your condition? He said, the condition is that after you, you give me the leadership. I want to be the leader. After you die, you give it to me. What's this? You don't embrace Islam on a condition of power. No, no, no. Rasul for those who say he was a man who wanted power. No. He said to him, no. Al-amru lillah. He said, that matter is for Allah. Who he chooses to be the leader after me is for Allah. And Allah says in the Quran, Amru lillah. The matter is for Allah. Yu'tihi man yasha'. He will give it to whoever he wills. The end result is for those who fear Allah. It's not in power, it's not in money. It's those who fear Allah. In the hereafter, not here in this world. So the man said, what? 
I'm going to pledge my blood and my family and my tribe for you. We're going to protect you and die in your cause. And you won't give me the leadership? Then we refuse. Prophet said, well, Islam is not built on power and leadership and wealth and material. It's sincerity. And those who followed the Prophet a lot of them weren't even elites. They were slaves, some of them. Just as Nuh, Nuh when the, the least of the people followed him, the, they used to call the peasants and the farmers in those days, and the elites came along and said, Ya Nuh, we will embrace Islam if you get rid of those people that have followed you, you know, the ones from the lower class. We're not going to mix with the lower class of people. They're, again, they're thinking of elitism, power. And Nuh replies to them, says, Oh no, I will never exile those who believe. You either embrace it sincerely or not. You don't come and use the religion in, for your ego and for your power and for your materialism and for your worldly gain. Allah, the Prophet ﷺ talks about the end of time. He said, there will come a time when a person will be a believer in the morning, a disbeliever by night. A believer by night, a disbeliever by the morning. Why? Because they sold their religion for a little bit of this worldly gain. We don't use our religion for worldly gain, my brothers and sisters. And to, to use it for power or for materialism, no. My brothers and sisters, so that tribe went. Then came another tribe. Now this second tribe, they were elites and they were very strong, very well known in, in war. And they lived close to Persia. Persia was the superpower of the world that time, remember? Their chief came along I, and he loved the message of the Prophet He said, my whole entire tribe will embrace and we will fight and support you except on one condition. He said, what's the condition? Listen carefully. He said, on one condition that if the Persians attacked you, we can't support you. We will not fight with you against the Persians. Prophet ﷺ replied, This religion is not as you please. You don't take part of it and leave the other part. You embrace Islam to protect the Messenger of Allah and you want to fight for the cause of Allah, but you won't support against an enemy who attacks them or your deen. No. As Allah said about the children of Israel, The children of Israel chose parts of the Torah. They said, we'll accept this, but we won't accept that. Rasul said, you enter the deen whole, wholly, not partly. You can't enter on certain things and certain things you don't want to practice. I'll enter Islam on my terms. You don't, Islam is not mine and yours. You don't enter on your terms. I'll just do that, but I won't do this. Yeah, there's a difference between people who are lacking in their practice. Like you're, you're not very practicing or you're probably sinful or you have shortcomings. And a person who comes and says, I believe, I believe in all of the deen, but I admit I have shortcomings. These guys are saying, no, we'll become our own version of Islam. All of this, but we won't do that. So Prophet ﷺ said, no, I can't accept you like that. And he said, well, then we won't embrace Islam. He said, then don't. And finally, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, what is he doing? See, he's eliminating all these weak-hearted people, these insincere people. And he, this is the beginning of Islam. This is the beginning of the truth. You need to have the most sincere of all of them because the next generations that are to come till our time today is going to be on the backs of those people. So they have to be the best of the best. 
the most taqwa, the most resilient, the most God-fearing, the most tawakkul, the most everything. And that is why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala chose, in the hadith it says, that Allah looked through all of the people of the world and He chose the most elite of them, the prophets, the best, not the elite in worldly gain, but the best of them He chose from among the prophets. And He looked from among them and He chose from among them Muhammad And from among the people He chose those to be His sahabas. The sahabas of the Prophet are chosen by Allah. They're deliberately chosen. And from among them came the tabi'un, the next generation after them. And from them came the third generation. The Sahabas, the Tabi'un, Atba'at Tabi'un. The first three generations of the Prophet are the best of all of mankind in the world. All of them. The Sahabas, that when the Prophet died, there came a generation who didn't meet the Prophet. We call them the second generation, At Tabi'un, those who followed him. Then they then after them came another generation. We call them the third generation. Within the first one hundred years of the Prophet's livelihood, his death, and then 100 years after he was brought out, until 100 years approximately, the three generations. They are the best generation. How do I know? From the Sahih Hadith, Prophet said in Bukhari and Muslim upon his deathbed, Khayrul Quruni Qarni, the best of all generations are my generation, the Sahabas. Then the ones who come straight after them. Then those who come after them. And he went silent. He didn't say any more. The best three generations, my brothers and sisters, Sahabas, Tabi'un, Atba'at Tabi'un. Companions, the ones came after them, the ones came after them. In that order. So who did, where did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, where is He preparing for them? What did He prepare? He is preparing the people of which city? Which city? Makkah, no, it's not working. We're already, we're already finished from Makkah now. There's another city outside of Makkah. The Prophet ﷺ is going to go to it. He's finding another place. Medina. Good. But now, in the 11th year of prophethood, what is it called? It's not called Medina yet. Who knows? That's the why? Yathrib. Everybody's calling it Yathrib. Alright. So Yathrib. It's even in the Quran. Ya Ahla Yathrib. Allah mentions the people of Yathrib. That's what it was called. So the people of Yathrib. There are two tribes there. They are called Aus and Khazraj. Aus and Khazraj. Can you memorize those names? It doesn't really matter because the Islamic term for them is going to be starting with an A. Who knows? Ansar. They're the ones mentioned in the Quran. So now we have two important names Muhajirun and Ansar. These guys are going to be. The best of the best on which Islam was built upon. We honor and respect these two, the first Muhajirun and the first Ansar of, of, of the people of Yathrib who pledged allegiance to the Prophet to death. They are the best. Any name you hear from the Muhajirun, the Ansar, in that, if you find out they're from them, honor them and respect them with everything you have. Every single one of them. The early ones. My brothers and sisters in Islam, who are these people of Aus and Khazraj of Yathrib, who will later on become the Ansar? This is what happened. The Prophet ﷺ, it's becoming really bad for him. And he wants to find a place to get out, otherwise, he and his Sahabas are going to be massacred. As soon as Mut'am ibn Adi, the one who gave him protection, is going to die, he's finished. 
what's going to happen? But obviously Rasulullah's tawakkul is upon, relies upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Allah's not going to let this religion fail. He's bringing it to the whole of the world. 1.7 billion people who are under the name of Islam. I don't know if they're all Muslim, but yani, they say we're Muslim at least. Uh, people who claim to follow the Prophet The point is, yani, there's a lot of Muslims that spread throughout the world. My brothers and sisters in Islam, Rasulullah now he receives news in the in the eleventh, approximately halfway through the eleventh year of prophethood, a group of about eleven, about twelve, sorry, twelve men, close to the twelfth year of his prophethood. They come to Mecca, seeking out the Prophet Why are they seeking him out? See, news got to them in Yathrib. Yathrib is about seven, six hours driving away. Five hours, six hours. In a car, maybe four and a half hours if you drive really fast. In a bus, maybe seven hours. Very far away. Take you, takes you about a month on foot. And these people come down hearing the news of a prophet. Why? You see, right next to Yathrib, there's these other people. They're called the, the, the Jews. There's three tribes. Next week, inshallah, I'll introduce to you those tribes. You need to know about the dynamics and how it's all, the neighbors and all that. But these particular Jews, Bani Qurayza, Banu Nadir, and Banu Qaynuqa, their names are, they, what, what they were doing was, they were telling these guys in Yathrib, Aws and Khazraj, these Arabs, Aws and Khazraj, so were the Jews, they were Arabs as well. We don't know how they got there, but they got there somehow. We don't know the history in, in detail. And we can write, we can have many lectures about them. There's big history. But we don't know how they got there exactly, these Arab Jews that arrived in Yathrib. They were teasing and, and, and promising those Arabs in Yathrib that they, God is going to bring them a prophet. A prophet. It's in the Torah, the Messiah. Because they believe Jesus Christ was an imposter. Remember? They say that they, want to, they, they try to crucify him and kill him. Those were the Jews. So now they're still waiting for their prophet. And there they have his descriptions. And he is Muhammad wasallam. In the Torah he is Ahmad. In Injil he is Ahmad. And they also know him as Muhammad, the praised one. He is about to arrive. But they're thinking that he's going to be from the bloodline of the children of Israel. Because all, most of the prophets have always been from the children of Israel, from the Jewish side. They have. And the last Arab prophet was Ismail. So, thousands of years later, these Jews are waiting for their great prophet. But they thought he's going to be from the children of Israel, not from Ismail's tribe, who is an Arab. Ends up being Muhammad from the Arabs. These Jews, they, they spoke Arabic, but they're not Arabic lineage, but they, they thought he's from the children of Israel. And they're telling these people, Yathrib people, you people do what you want. You keep fighting each other and whatever. We're going to take over this whole place. And our prophet is going to come. And he'll massacre you. And we'll be the elites and we'll take over. We'll be the leaders of the lands. So these people, Aws and Khazraj, they heard about this man in Mecca who was calling himself a prophet. And they heard some beautiful words from people they respect. So they go over and they say, hold on. This is the man the Jews have been telling us about all these years. Surely there must be some truth to it. 
What if it happens to be from the Arabs? Let's go see, man. Let's go see. You've got to keep... You've got to understand. Arabs did not know the concept of prophethood. They don't understand. All the way since time of Ismail, they never heard about it. There's no internet, there's no airplanes, there's no mailbox system, there's no post office, nothing like that. So if you're born there, that's it. That's all you really know. You know about camels and deserts and sand. That's about it. You don't know about this prophet and stuff. You don't even know that there is a Torah and a Bible and Christian. You don't know these things. Then I hear about a prophet. Jews have been talking about it. The Arabs respect the fact that the Jews have some holy book. Okay, there must be something right. Let's go there. And if he is a prophet, we'll, get, we'll grab him before the Jews get him. We'll follow him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that put this into their hearts. These 11 men from, from Yathrib. And he guided them. They were important men, beautiful, great men. They went to Mecca. And there they asked about the Prophet sallallahu And they met him at an area in Mecca called Aqaba. It's a name of a little area called Aqaba. وَمَا أَدْرَاكَ مَا الْعَقَبَ Allah mentions it in Surah Al-Balad. Al-Aqaba. It's the name of the place. They saw the Prophet ﷺ there. They asked him about Islam and they loved it. It entered their hearts, these 12, 12 men, and they embraced it. And they did something that no one has ever done before in the history of mankind. A new system of leadership and kind of leading up to a government, a state. They did something called Al-Bay'ah. Anyone heard of Bay'ah before? Allegiance. Now from here onwards, I'm going to say some stuff in the seerah that I need time to explain, man, because it can be misunderstood and misinterpreted. And there are some things that I've got to be careful how I say them. Because in this day and age, there are people who attack these certain events that I'm about to talk about. And I'm not going to be apologetic. I don't care. I'll say it as it is, but inshallah, in, in clarity and without emotions and so on and so forth, as it is, inshallah ta'ala. My brothers and sisters, we should not be afraid to talk about the truth of Islam. But some of us, we talk it in the wrong way, that's all, with emotions and whatever. Some of us call, talk about it in a gangster style. Others of us talk about it in an emotional, uh, passionate style. Think with your brain, talk all the avenues of it. So there's something called bay'ah, Pledge of Allegiance. Now this particular Pledge of Allegiance means that you say something to one person who you want to become the leader of all your people. You send representatives of different communities whom these communities respect. And they go to that person on the behalf of their people and they pledge allegiance to them that they will follow and obey that leader Okay, in everything they have. This pledge of allegiance never happened before. They used to pledge to the king, they used to pledge to, you know, chiefs. But this pledge was not a pledge to a man because of the man. They were pledging to the Prophet ﷺ on what? On, on making him their leader to govern them by a law which was sent down from the heavens, not by a man-made law. 
They're not pledging allegiance to a leader who's made up his own laws and rules. This is different to any system you've ever heard of. It's different to the democratic system. It's different to a fascist, to a communist system, to every system that you've heard of. It's a new system. We are going to be introduced to the Khilafah system. Never ever happened in the history of mankind before the Prophet Muhammad came. Khilafah, a leader of the entire Ummah, entire nation, regardless of nationality and background and color and race and gender. Ruling by a law that was sent down from the heavens, the Quran, and later on will become the Sunnah, the, the way of the Prophet Muhammad, the Messenger of God. In a democratic system, basically, people come up and they start voting from everywhere on a particular law or a particular people that the majority agree on. That's it. And you can make any new law, anything you like. If alcohol is to be allowed, as long as the majority of the people vote for it, then it becomes allowed. If prostitution is going to be allowed, so long as the people all agree to prostitution, it becomes allowed. That's why they do these votes in what they call the democratic way. There's no such thing really as a proper democracy. They just say that to you. So in Islam, we don't, have, we don't have that. You can't just come up and so long as the majority of the people agree on something which is wrong, it becomes law. No. Yes, we, we, we vote in a certain, on certain things that Allah has allowed us to vote on, but not in this democratic system where it contradicts the laws of the Qur'an and Sunnah. So these members of these communities in Yathrib came and pledged allegiance with the Prophet ﷺ, but it was called the lesser pledge of allegiance. It was called Bay'atun Nisa. Bay'atun Nisa. The Pledge of Allegiance of Women. And it doesn't mean that women pledged, there were 12 men. But they called it the Pledge of Allegiance of Women because it was a pledge to obey the Prophet ﷺ in everything except fighting, combat. No jihad. So it was called because, because in Islam women are not. It's, they're not obliged to take up arms and fight to protect. That's the men's duty in Islam. So they call it Bay'at al-Nisa. And the Bay'at, this Pledge of Allegiance, was a man by the name of Abad ibn Samit, who is one of the Ansar. He says, We shook hands with the Prophet ﷺ and we promised him that we will obey him and the Prophet ﷺ said on the following six things. Number one, to not make shirk. Don't make partners with Allah. They said we pledge allegiance never to do that. Us and our people. Number two, to not kill our children. Because they used to bury their daughters alive, some of them. And some needs to kill their boys as well. So not to kill their children, not to get an abortion. In today's world, abortions are haram. It's murder. Unless in very severe circumstances, right? But it's murder to kill a child that is in the stomach, in the womb of the mother. So not to kill our children. He also said to, among other things, Yani, 
there were things of akhlaq, of good manners and character, and of rights of people, not to take the rights of people, not to steal, he said, not to steal, no theft. So these things are community things, and they pledged allegiance to Prophet Sallallahu to do that. I didn't count all six because I forgot them all, but I counted about three for you. So inshallah, maybe next week I'll bring them to you, all the six. But they're community-based things. After that, these 12 men, they set off and went back to Yathrib to give da'wah. They said, what do you want us to do, Ya Rasulullah? He said, go and tell them about Islam. And he sent with them an amazing companion. Guess who he sent with them? It starts with an M. Mus'ab, Mus'ab ibn Umair radiallahu anhu. He's one of my childhood role models actually, personally. Why? He had an eloquent tongue. He were, when he spoke, he was extremely clear. He was patient when he spoke. And he had an extremely good way of communicating with people. He was really good with people. He was a people's man. So Allah Rasulullah sent Mus'ab ibn Umair. Just to tell you a bit about him. Mus'ab ibn Umair, before embracing Islam, what was he known for? He was known for his well-groomed appearance. He used to comb his hair so well and oil it. He used to wear the best of clothing, the most... It's like saying today, the latest design, the latest fashion. They used to look at Mus'ab ibn Umar and say, what's he wearing lately? And everybody would copy him. You know, like when you look at soccer players, what's the new hairstyle? And you find young people all copying whatever the guy did, because he, he's good at kicking a, a ball into a net. So they copy his hairstyle and his clothing and his shoes. So long as it's halal, you can copy it, but don't take it too seriously. So they copied his fashion. And he used to wear the best of cologne and best of perfume and walk in the streets. And, and there's nothing wrong with looking good and, and buying good clothes and combing your hair. But this is from the sunnah. But there's a difference between looking good and making it your focus. We live in a world where, where appearance and image is a focus to the point where people have become so obsessed that it's become a disease, a sickness, anorexia, bulimia, uh, people doing bizarre things with their bodies, depression, anxiety, low self-esteem, never happy with the way you look. Oh my God, it's gone beyond control on social media and the likes. So the point is you don't focus, my brothers and sisters, on, on that. This is a waste of time. Mus'ab ibn Umayr left it all. He stayed well-groomed, however, he had a new focus. And that's what makes you a real man, a real person, a real, or a real woman, a real person who has a purpose in life, a valuable person. You've got bigger, a bigger purpose in life than just combing your hair all day and seeing what the latest fashion is in, in hairstyles and, and grooming and, and so on and so forth. <coughs> Mus'ab ibn Umayr then left with these sahabas and went to Yathrib to give them da'wah. They promised that after within a year, they'll come back with more people. And truly they did. With Mus'ab ibn Umayr being there, more than a thousand people embraced Islam. And in the 12th year, towards the end of the 12th year of Hijrah and Hajj again, of, of, of prophethood, 73 men and 11 women came from Yathrib to pledge allegiance with the Prophet Among them was Sa'd ibn Malik. Sa'd ibn Malik, 
was a famous poet. I'll come back to him. When they arrived, they asked, where is the messenger of God? Where is Muhammad? And they pointed, he was sitting with his uncle Al-Abbas. So they went to him in the same place, Al-Aqaba. And they made the second pledge of allegiance. It is called Al-Aqaba Thaniya. The second pledge of allegiance in Al-Aqaba. The only difference between the first pledge and the second pledge was that this time they were going to pledge to not only obey the Prophet ﷺ in everything, except, but also that they were going to put their blood themselves on the line to protect the Prophet ﷺ and fight to protect the Messenger of God and to protect Islam the way they protect their families and themselves. Saad ibn Malik, when he approached the Prophet ﷺ, he said, we have come to you to pledge allegiance. The Prophet ﷺ asked him for his name. He had another Sahabi with him. And he said, I'm Sa'd ibn Malik. Sa'd ibn Malik said, Wallahi, I will never forget what the Prophet ﷺ said to me when he first heard my name. And it might not mean a lot to you guys here when I tell you, but when you understand the circumstances, you'll see why. The Prophet ﷺ only said this. He said he opened his eyes wide, turned all his attention to me and said, Sa'd ibn Malik, none other but the great poet. The great poet. You don't think it's something great, a poetry. You think of Shakespeare, right? Who cares about Shakespeare? You've got to put it into context. I want you to think about, in today's world today, the most powerful media person. The person who has the control over all of media. Because today, the greatest power is media. If you can control the media, you can control the minds of the world. The controller of Hollywood, the greatest influencer of Hollywood, for example. You control the minds. When you talked about a poet, the more famous you are as a poet, the more influence you had on all the people of Arabia. Everybody feared the poets, man. They feared them more than warriors, more than a whole tribe coming and attacking you. A poet says one thing, that's it. If he praises a people, they're praised forever. He destroys a people just with a few words. If he sounds very eloquent, they're destroyed forever. So they used to pay poets lots of money. The great leaders used to pay them lots of money to just say a nice word about them. Just to mention their name, if they are famous. Sa'd ibn Malik, one of the most famous poets in Arabia. He says one word, that's it. Everybody's going to listen says, Islam is this or Islam is that. Everybody wants to listen now to Islam. A poet says, Islam is bad. People run away from it. So you've got to think, this is a powerful man. A man who is able to move the minds and change the minds of people in their hearts through poetry. And obviously the Quran is the best of language. Imagine Saad Malik saying poetry and then putting verses of the Quran right in his poetry. It was going to be amazing. So, power of media, my brothers and sisters, the power of eloquence, the power. You've got to see what is it in our world today that will support and assist us in teaching people and showing Islam the right way and go for it. What is that people will listen to? What are the people are influenced by? SubhanAllah, people these days are following things really out of no purpose, nothingness. They're doing these dances because of a certain singers did it. The people are throwing themselves off buildings or, or dancing in front of moving cars with danger just because they want to copy 
and imitate something that's really stupid and, and, and worthless, has no meaning whatsoever. But they're willing to do it because it's cool and gets us likes and makes me famous. We can use ways, inshallah, that people listen to in order to spread the teachings of Islam. And you know, may Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala assist us all in doing this. There are thousands of ways that you can do so. You've just got to find where your strength is. So that's the key to find out what is it. We live in a world of advertisement and media. So Sa'd ibn Malik was that poet. And he said to the Prophet before I pledge allegiance, you're asking for something big here. What do we get in return? He's not asking world, he says, what do we get in return? That's a good question. The Prophet said, in return, you will have Jannah. Sa'd ibn Malik and the other said, then people, the other ones said, I am going to pledge allegiance. Before you do so, it means your life, your property and your family. You are going to protect the Prophet even if it means sacrificing them. I am the first to do so. He placed his hand and pledged. He said, we will not break the deal so long as you do not break the deal. What is the deal? You give us Jannah and we pledge our lives for Islam and for you, Ya Rasulullah. For Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and He's the Messenger of God. Allah then sent down the verse, إِنَّ اللَّهَ اشْتَرَى مِنَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ أَنفُسَهُمْ بِأَنَّ لَهُمُ الْجَنَّةِ Allah bought from the believers themselves. He bought their bodies and their wealth, he bought their blood, he bought them in exchange for Jannah. So Allah pays you Jannah for you to sell him yourself. And their wealth. In Allah He bought from them themselves and their wealth, their property. In exchange, Allah will give them Jannah. And the remainder of the verse, يقاتلون, they fight in the will of Allah, by the path of Allah. ويقتلون, and they are killed and slayed in the protection and in the fight of protecting Islam, Muslims and the Messenger of God. So this Pledge of Allegiance was one full, which meant that now for the first time in 12 years of the Prophethood, Muslims are now going to take up arms against the enemies who attack them. Those who threaten Islam through blood or through weaponry, they are going to fight them. Fellas, every country has an army to protect its borders. The country has a right. Every people have a right to protect themselves. You have a right to protect your property, your home, your family. Even if you have to fight or take up arms. If somebody takes up arms against you, by law you have a right to protect yourself. Police carry guns with them. If somebody takes out a weapon, they have a right to shoot them on the spot. Why? Because they are taking up arms. This is the right of people. If they, people carry arms against you, you can fight them with arms as well. This is the right of any common person in the world. So my brothers and sisters, these were the Muslims who had pledged allegiance for the first time that if they were needed to fight, they will fight and protect the Messenger of Allah and Islam. These men and women 
The men shook hands with the Prophet ﷺ and said it with their words. The women said it only with their mouths. And they left back to Medina in year 3. Rasulullah now stayed back in Mecca and he refused to leave until two things happened. The permission of Allah has to be given to the Prophet first. Allah did not give him permission to leave yet. And Allah said to the Prophet Do not be like the man of the big fish or the whale. He's talking about Prophet Yunus he left his people angry at them. And he thought that we will not, we will not discipline him. And then he called out to Allah in the stomach of the whale. Remember the story. So a prophet is not allowed to leave his people until Allah gives him permission. So the Prophet ﷺ stayed. And secondly, he did not leave until all the Muslims had left first. He's not going to leave them behind. Until finally the only ones left in Mecca. So people started now migrating where to? To Mecca, to Medina, to Yathri. As soon as, if you are persecuted in a land because of your deen, then you, if you find a place where your deen is protected and you are protected to practice your deen, you must go there. So the Muslims are now going to Yathrib. No Islamic state has been established there yet. No governance, the Prophet is not there yet. But right now, it's become a land where there are people who are, have pledged allegiance to the Prophet ﷺ and they are willing to uphold their deen and protect the Muslims who go there. Obviously, they also don't fight the Jews. And they don't fight the Mushrikeen who are idolaters because they're not fighting them. Muslim doesn't fight people just like that. We are not ordered to fight people, innocent people. So, Rasulullah ﷺ waited until the permission of Allah was given. The only ones left was him. Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu and Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu's daughters, the Prophet and a few of his daughters, Fatima radiallahu anhu and Ali radiallahu anhu. They're the only ones left. And some of the slaves who couldn't leave. They just couldn't leave. So then Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu kept coming back to the Prophet and said, Ya Rasulullah, do you give me permission? Because everyone who wanted to leave had to ask the Prophet permission as well. He gave them all permission except for Abu Bakr radiallahu anhu. He never gave him permission. Ya Rasulullah, al-Hijrah. The Prophet said, no, no, Ya Abu Bakr, not yet. Until permission comes, until permission comes. And Abu Bakr was thinking, why me, Tayyip? So then he started thinking. He thought, maybe the Prophet wants me to go with him. Maybe he wants me to go with him. Ah, oh, if that's the case, Ya Rab, Ya Rab, Ya Rab. And then one day, the permission was given to the Prophet ﷺ to migrate. It was in the heart of the day, the middle of the day. Why the middle of the day? Because in Arabia, the middle of the day is the hottest part of the day. And nobody comes out. They used to go to sleep. Because it was so hot, people didn't go to them, the market, they didn't engage in anything. So what did they do? Sleep. And it becomes a sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that qaylula, having a sleep, a, 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 a um, what's the word for it in English? Hmm? A siesta. A nap. Siesta is the proper English word. So siesta during the day. It's from the sunnah to have a qaylula. Finally, you feel very energized. But unfortunately, here in Australia, and Lots of other countries, we can't do that. That's why we feel so lazy all the time. 
not make do. So, the siesta. But this time the Prophet ﷺ came out while everyone's having their siesta, no one's outside in absolute secrecy. He's got to keep it secret. The people of Quraysh, they're after him. So he goes to who? To Abu Bakr Knocks on his door and says to him, Akhrij man indak. Whoever's in your house, tell them to get out. No one's allowed to hear. And Abu Bakr says, Ya Rasulullah, it's just my family, my children, my wife. So he enters, and in their houses, there were like, there were curtains that divided the house. It wasn't like walls, five by four and eight by twelve and all that stuff. No, they had little curtains that divided it. I remember my mother, she says, when I was a child, my mother, when she was a child, back in Lebanon, they lived in mud houses. And subhanAllah, how they lived, even your, your grandparents, you will know, they had a curtain that divided the house, and on one side, they kept the cattle, cow. Because that was their livelihood. And on the other side they slept. And she told me we used to we gave the cattle the better side. And we took the side where subhanAllah rain would come in. Why? Because the cattle was our livelihood. La ilaha illa. Look how much luxury we have today. So they, that's how they live. Prophet entered and he says to Abu Bakr anhu, it has been given permission. And Abu Bakr's face was lit with, with noor. He smiled, he was about to giggle, he was about to scream. Prophet said, quiet, quiet. He said, As-suhbah, Ya Rasulullah, As-suhbah, am I gonna, I'm gonna be your friend, I'm gonna go with you on this migration? He said, As-suhbah, Ya Abu Bakr. Oh, Abu Bakr was so, this was like the best thing that's ever happened to him since the day his mother gave birth to him. He's gonna be accompanying the Prophet All this time, Allah had not given permission. He wants Abu Bakr to be with Muhammad on this migration. And this, my brothers and sisters, is all a sign that Allah was preparing Abu Bakr Siddiq to be the next Khalifa of the Muslims. The first Khalifa of the Muslims. Now Ali anhu was there too. And he had another mission. So Abu Bakr anhu goes. And what does he do? He gets two camels and prepares them really, really well. He fattens them and feeds them for two whole months according to one of the narrations. You know the camel is called the ship of the, of the desert. It has these humps. If you feed it a lot, the hump starts to grow bigger. Did you know that? It stores all the water and nutrients and everything, right? The fat. And it makes it prepared. So Abu prepared two really fat camels. They were, they were huge. He spent everything on them, preparing them for the hijrah. In the meantime, Quraysh hears about people leaving Mecca. And they think this is our last chance before Muhammad leaves. So the elites of Mecca got together in Dar al Nadwa. And among them was Abu Jahl and Umayyah and Utbah, Abu Sufyan, all those elites of, the, of, the, of Quraysh. And they tried to work out something, a way to finally get rid of Muhammad before he migrates. So they said, Let's imprison him in the house, not let him get out. Allah says it in the Quran. Those who disbelieve, they are plotting. And yuthqifuk, to keep you imprisoned in your home. In those days, they didn't have prisons and dungeons like what we have today. They, don't, they didn't have this system among the Arabs. So they want to trap him in his home, house arrest. And they said, no, no, we can't do that. 
the Arabs will say this and say that about us. They said, okay, we'll exile him. Allah says in the Quran, or, that, or to exile you. They said, no, 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 we can't exile him. If we exile him, we give him power. He goes and calls the other Arabs, he'll get some people and come back and take us over. No, 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 we can't exile him. So everybody went quiet and they were all thinking about one thing. But no one dared to say it. They, they can't say it because as I told you, the Arabs had this thing. You kill one of your own members, you have the humiliation by all the other Arabs. But no one dared to say it. So who comes up and says it? The worst of them all. Abu Jahl. He looks at everyone and says, come on guys. You know. Hmm? Okay. He says, kill him. Just kill the guy. And they all said, it's a good idea. But how? You know, if you kill him or I kill him, everyone's going to say that my tribe killed him. So the, there's a narration, I don't know if it's correct, but a man comes in from Najd, far place. Nobody knew him. He was wearing black. And later on we find out that he was probably Iblis himself, the shaitan. And he comes up to them and says, Nah, think of another idea, think of another idea. And then Abu Jahl goes, kill him, but we will bring one young man from every Arab tribe, 40 tribes. And they'll all come on to him at his house and kill him at once. So that his blood will be separated among all the tribes. And that way his tribe, Banu Hashim, they can't attack us. They'll have to ask us for blood money. And we'll just pay them blood money instead. They're not going to fight all 40 tribes. Because, you know, if you kill him, then Banu Hashim will have to fight that tribe. So 40 tribes, they can't beat him. We'll get a young man from each tribe, 40 tribes, and we'll all kill him at once. And that way his blood will be separated among all the 40 tribes. And that way Banu Hashim, they'll accept blood money. And everybody will settle Bye-bye, we've killed Muhammad. So they got the 40 young men and they waited outside the Prophet's house. Inshallah, next week, my brothers and sisters, we'll continue from here because Isha time has arrived. I'll keep you hanging. Cliffhanger. We'll do cliffhangers every week, inshallah. Every week I'm going to get you. Expect cliffhangers. They gathered, someone looked inside, and a woman screamed. But I'll tell you next week, inshallah. Yes, I'll have to cliffhang you. All right. Jazakumullah khair. Next week, inshallah, Thursday, same time between Maghrib and Isha until we finish the seerah, inshallah ta'ala, at Preston Masjid. Wa sallallahu ala nabina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. Wa salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Can you give me that, please? Thank you.